Radio Drama Revival is brought to you in part by Audible, who offer a free 30-day trial and free audiobook at audibletrial.com forward slash radiodrama. Audible boasts over 30,000 titles, including a whole ton of audio drama. That's why I love it. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash radiodrama. Thanks. And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told to the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear here news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And so here we are. Today, as I mentioned, we're on this uh, little kick of uh, visiting some of the artists uh, that we have not had on the show recently, but have uh, really uh, come a long way, some of our Uh, my personal favorite picks among independent audio podcasting. Um, Some who've been around for uh, a good long time, such as uh, our guest today, the Chatterbox Audio Theater Company. Uh, Now, Chatterbox uh, started a little bit after Radio Drum Revival kicked off, but I think still about 2007 uh, was when they came on the scene, and they have done um, all sorts of work, several really memorable uh, original productions, uh, such as The Dead Girl, which we featured um, some years back, which uh, won an Ogle Award. Uh, they've also done lots of retellings, uh, everything from Master Zacharias, which is part of Transcontinental Terror this year, uh, Mythologia, a piece that takes uh, Greek myths and reimagines them for the uh, modern day, uh, Pinocchio, Pied Piper, Ricky Tiki Tavi. Um, they did this uh, very nice production of Jason and the Argonauts, um, Argonautica, which was uh, performed before a live audience. Um, as well as a Halloween show they've done each year since 2008, actually. Um, they've also done uh, some retellings that are also sort of uh, originally inspired. There's this really nice piece, Dead and Gone, a retelling of James Joyce's work, The Dead, um, set in Tennessee, um, and that was really masterfully done. Um, so they've they've really shown off that they have an incredible range in terms of the breadth of production they can do, both um, original to uh, uh, retellings and, and celebrations of classic literature. What we have today is something quite different even from all of that, and this is called Prison Stories. Now this is, um, uh, Bob Arnold himself of Chatterbox says it's a bit of a departure from them. Um, it is a piece recorded in collaboration with Voices of the South, coordinated by a woman, Elaine Blanchard, um, who uh, had spent time working in the Shelby County Correctional Center, uh, talking with women and working with women and and writing and and hearing their stories. And so this is true stories, nonfiction, uh, but using the the craft of audio drama, um, I believe the use of actors uh, to tell, to read the stories, uh, some very, very spare sound design and i say that in in the 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 greatest sense of it um not that this production is lacking sound but that it uses very minimalist sound effects and music uh so that when you do use it it's it's incredibly powerful and this is again even for radio drum revival a bit of a departure um it is since it is uh based on true material um it also has somewhat graphic material in terms of the women describing their lives um, incidents of uh, sexual assaults in their their lives and violence and things like that. I personally didn't find it um, too ex- exceptional, but it is quite real, so uh, do bear that in mind as you hear this next production called Prison Stories um, is quite moving, quite powerful. 
Chatterbox Audio Theater and Voices of the South present Prison Stories, Incarcerated Women Writing Toward Freedom. I'm charged with voluntary manslaughter. And I did a terrible thing. But that's not all there is to my story. Once, I was a little girl riding in the back seat of a family car, going off on an adventure with my parents, my brothers and sisters. Once, I imagined a beautiful life for me. I'm here on a theft of property charge. But the title of my life story could be The Very Good Girl. I was raised in a religious home with protective parents. I'm learning that even good and religious people are not perfect. Only God is perfect. I'm human and still growing. I'm in jail because of robbery. And this isn't the first time I've been caught and put in jail. I hope this is the last time. I'm, I'm a poet, a writer, and I'm sharp as a tack. I can do anything I put my mind to doing. I just got to stop allowing my mind to be robbed by drugs. I'm doing time for forgery and theft of property. I like things, clothes, jewelry. I love to shop and eat out. Being in jail is teaching me that my children are worth more than anything money can buy. Crime can rob me of them and their respect. It's not worth it. I'm in here charged with promotion of meth, DUI, and theft of property over a thousand. And I've got to find a new story that tells about how I got out of here and stayed out of here. I'm in jail on the charge of violation of probation and forgery. I've been in the habit of doing stuff that's not right. I know that. There's more to me than passing bad checks. I've got a family I love. They love me. I'm charged with criminal attempt promotion of methamphetamine. I know I look like an angel, but I've gotten myself into some bad business. Bad business. That's the end of that sad story. Sad story. I've got a daughter to raise, and I want her to be proud of me. Proud of me. As proud of me as I am proud of her. Proud of her. I'm going to be telling her bedtime stories with happy endings. Happy endings. When I get out of here this time. I'm here on possession of a controlled substance. And that's the end of that story. Case closed. I've made important changes in my life story while I've been in here. I got my GED. I've made amends. I've made a plan. The story will be different when I get out of here. My story will be about a total transformation. I'm going to repay my grandparents the kindness they showed to me when they rescued us and raised us. I'm going
everyone to honor their memory by living a good life. They got me on a charge of possession of a controlled substance. I've been out smoking crack for too long. That's a tired, worn-out story now. I got a son and two grandchildren. I got plenty of reason to do better. I'm a hard worker. My story in the future will be about owning my own cleaning business. I'm in here on the same charge as you, possession of a controlled substance. Something I had no business possessing except for the fact that it got possession of me before I knew what was happening. I've I've lost lost enough in this this life. My husband and I buried our son a while back. I know how short life can be. My story. My story. My story. My story. My story. My story is going to be about spending time with the people I love and telling them how much they mean to me. country to escape to the past I've seen so much sorrow but I cannot run as fast as you do straight away from yesterday Back to the Lord Almighty, back to the cradle of creation. To this day, I wish I had never left Oklahoma. Oklahoma is mostly hills, mountains, creeks, dirt roads, and American Indians. When my grandparents rescued us, me and my siblings... We went to a rural school, Peavine Elementary. Back then, I played every sport you can think of, and I was good. I was happy in Stillwell, Oklahoma. Everyone knew everyone in that small town. I had aunts, uncles, and cousins there. My grandmother was a cook like you wouldn't believe. We never wanted for anything. Even though my grandparents had already raised their own children, they rescued us and took very good care of us. I thank them for that. When I was 17, I was hanging out with the manager of Pepper's Pizza. That's where I worked. Scott, the manager, was older than me. I liked him. I liked to talk to him, and he liked to listen. That's all it was, just friends. My mother met Scott and me at the door one day. She asked, Do you love my daughter enough to marry her? I could have died. What was she talking about? Scott looked straight at my mother and said, Yes, I do. We hadn't even ever kissed each other. Then my mother and Scott got busy making plans for a wedding. Nobody even bothered to ask me if I wanted to get married. I was standing off to the side while my life was being planned by other people. I wasn't ready to get married, but I didn't know how to back out. I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. My husband and I promised to love, honor, and respect each other for better or for worse. 
in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Many nights in this jail, I cry myself to sleep because I miss my husband. In the 11 years of our married life, we've added a daughter to our family, and she will learn from us how to value her family. We're responsible for setting the example for her. Families love each other unconditionally. She was talking to me on the phone the other night and asked, if God forgives and loves us no matter what, then why can't Daddy forgive you? Hey. Hey, y'all, hey, listen. What? Listen, I... I wrote another poem. Y'all want to hear oh, it? No. no. Come on, tell let me anyway. read it. Let oh, me read it. it Come on, anyway. this is my last one. Okay, listen, listen. <clears throat> Being a child wasn't easy for me. If you knew my family, you could see. Two big brothers huh, and the bitchiest mother. <laughs> Always yelling and fighting each other. Can never be civil no matter the occasion. Next thing you know... We're in the ER with a head laceration. Oh, Never together for a simple discussion. One wrong word, all screaming and cussing. We're no Waltons. <laughs> no Brady Bunch. Nothing like you see on TV. Well, we might be a mix of Jerry Springer and the Adams family. Oh, <laughs> we're rich with problems when we're together. It's all we've got. Can't work them out. Not now, not ever. I was born in 1971 in the state of Illinois while both my parents were fugitives from the law. My mom gave birth to me in a hospital and she tells me that my dad came to the hospital to see me. He looked at me and said, That ain't my baby. But I look just like him. I think... I could feel the pain of his rejection, even then, the very first day of my life. My dad used to go to work every day, and all of us went to school. We lived in a mobile home because we moved state to state pretty often. My dad worked construction, and we moved with jobs. One day after school, the police drove to our house, and my mother fell to the ground. They were telling her that my father had just been killed on his job. That's when our world fell apart. My mother started drinking, and it was her way to ease the pain. Things got worse. Then she met a man, and he didn't like us, and we sure didn't like him at all. I guess my mother mixed up her priorities, so she left us alone. She took the insurance money from my dad's death, bought a new Cadillac, and drove away in it. My father died when I was 10 years old, and life was different after that. My father had been a very good provider, even though he drank too much. Living with my mother wasn't the same without him. We didn't get as much. When I was 15, I started shooting hooky from school. I was selling my body to old men. I met this old man who would give me anything I wanted. I was smoking weed all day back then. The old man called and told my mama he was coming by to get me to take me for a ride. There was another man and woman in the car with him when he picked us up. The other man was sitting on the floorboard of the car when I got in. We got on the expressway and I had never seen a road with no traffic lights before. 
I was looking and smoking weed. Then I fell asleep. When I woke up, I saw that we were still riding, riding on the expressway. I said, where Where are are we we going? going? The old man said, we're going riding. And he fired up more weed to keep me quiet. I smoked a while and then I slept some more. When I woke up, it was raining so hard that we had pulled over to the side of the road. I said, where Where are are we we going? going? I'm I'm ready ready to go go home. I was starting to feel more scared than I had ever felt before. He said, we're on our way to Miami, Florida, where you can start working and earn some money. At that very moment, I regretted all the lies I'd ever told my mama. I was sorry for skipping school. I wanted more than anything else in the world to be home and in my mama's arms. But we went on to Miami and stopped at Sunny Day's Motel on Biscayne Boulevard. The old man told me to stop crying, get myself together, because it was time to make him some money. That's what I did. One day I was working in the broad daylight, and the police got hot on me, so I went to a girlfriend's house where I fell asleep. I knew I was in trouble when I woke up at 1 o'clock. I hadn't earned any money. I got out there and tried to make some money, but the old man rode up on me and made me get in the car with him and his friends. He asked me, where you been all night? Why you ain't made me any money? That old man took his boot off and hit me in the face and head. He hit my arms and my legs. Then he had his friend drive to a part of Miami I didn't know at all. It was the ghetto. He put me out in front of a convenience store where there was a phone booth. That's where he called my mama. He told her he had taken me to Florida, but he didn't need me no more. He told her to find a way to get me back home. Then he and his friend drove away. I stood there crying on the phone with my mama. And she asked, What street are you on? I told her. She said, Stay right there. I'm calling the police. And I guess she did call the police. The police probably came to find me. But I wouldn't know because I met a man and he was interested in me. I went with him to his place. He and his friend gave me $400 for dating them that night. I was 15. I see the sunlight upon your face. I see so much beauty. Cause your eyes tell something more But I will not waste your time With trivialities, my As a little girl, I had the responsibility to take care of me and my little brothers. My mother was a single parent, and she worked two jobs, so I had my job, too. One night, my baby brother had the nerve to leave the house looking for his dad. 
wearing a white T-shirt and Superman briefs. The police found him and brought him home. That scared all of us because we were in bed and asleep. I have five kids by a man I thought would be my husband one day. But it turns out he's having kids with everybody in the whole neighborhood. Everywhere he lays his head, there's kids that look just like him. He has his fun and leaves the house, leaves the kids, and somebody else pays the bills. I was at home cooking, cleaning, and selling his dope for him. I was waiting for him to come home. And when he comes through the door, he says, This all the money you made, ho? What you been doing? Now, why would I marry a man like that? Maybe I'd marry a man like that just to be sure I got a man when I need one. I'm not sure that's a rational decision, but it seems a good enough reason at one time. My daughter's name is Summer. So beautiful. Blonde hair, blue laughing eyes. Oh, she lit up the room when she was around. I miss most of her life because of my drug addiction. My mom and Summer prayed for me to get well every night before Summer went to sleep. I was in rehab and getting better. I was with Summer on Mother's Day and on my birthday that year. My mother and sister brought her to see me while I was working at Burger King. She ran to me, smiling, so happy to see me, and I was so happy to hold that little girl in my arms. I had no idea it would be the last time I ever saw her. They came to rehab and told me that my baby was dead. A gun safe fell off my dad's pickup truck and hit Summer in the back of her head. She died right there in the arms of her little brother, James. That was in August of 2004. I relapsed. Her death has left a huge hole in my heart. I feel lost. James asks me, Mama, why is life so hard? And I just shake my head. I remind him that we'll see summer again in heaven one day. Most of my stories are sad. Tragic. I found out I was pregnant when I was 17. I quit doing drugs right away and I cut back on smoking cigarettes. When my daughter, Anna, was several months old, I started working at a bank. I left home around one in the afternoon. Everything revolved around Anna. When she was about six months old, my mother pointed out that my baby was having a hard time holding her head up. I just thought I held her too much. The pediatrician said that she was developmentally delayed and sent us to see a neurologist. That's where we learned that she has cerebral palsy. And so she started having occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy. My daughter is 10 years old now. She is in a wheelchair, and she still has trouble holding her head up. But she always wears a smile. She's happy and strong. She never complains. I think she's an angel. One day, 
I was a little girl with dreams and plans to become something good. I could own my own business one day, be married to a man who loved me, and I loved him too. Have children who got on the bus and went to school and learned what they needed to know to make it good in this world. One day, so long ago, I was a little girl with dreams and plans to become something good. Now here I am, locked up in this gated community. One lie led to others. And then I wondered what it would cost me to stop telling lies. And the cost just seemed too much. The only way to the dream was to keep telling lies. But the dream died, smothered under all the lies. One day, I was a little girl with dreams and plans. Seems so far away now. So long ago. Ooh, just thinking about family turns me cold. My heart still beats and my blood runs red. I'm still breathing. But I'm old. I'm dead. I miss the free world. My story is happening out there where my children are. I put everything in jeopardy by coming here. I am the mother of seven beautiful children. I have been well-loved and cared for, but I made bad choices. I want my children to learn that they deserve to be treated with respect. And it's hard because they have watched their daddy beat me down. Bruises and black eyes. That worries me so because their daddy's excuse after he beats me is always this. Oh, I'm sorry. I saw my daddy do the same thing to my mama. I look at my two sons and wonder, will these sweet angels be using that same excuse when their wives are beat down, bruised, with black eyes? My mother has been married eight times, and every husband has been the same drunks and junkies who beat her. When I was two years old, my mother and father divorced. When I was five years old, she remarried. That husband went to work and came home and went straight to the bedroom. My mother took his dinner plate in there. If he ever came out of the bedroom, he was stumbling and drunk. He called my mother fat ass. She cried all the time. They split up, and I begged my mother to go down to Mississippi and get my biological father to come back to us. I missed him. She drove down there and brought him back. Then one night, I heard my mother screaming. I got out of bed and I looked out the window and I saw my father dragging my mother by her hair across the gravel driveway. I ran outside and shouted, leave her alone, leave her alone. And he hollered at me, get back in the house. 
my mother is the most amazing person I know. She has been through so much and she is still standing strong. Standing strong. Standing strong. Standing strong. Standing strong. Standing strong. used to wonder if violence was my middle name. I was born into violence, grew up with it, and learned to survive in spite of it. I'm in prison because of my violent offense, voluntary manslaughter. I watched my mom being beat up by my dad. I was a part of it. My dad beat me plenty of times while he was beating my mother. I turned 18 and got into a relationship with a violent man of my own. My children have been raised with violence. They've seen me beat so bad I had to go to the emergency room plenty times. My son saw me in a rage that ended up killing somebody. He'll never be able to forget that. I hope and pray that's the last time any of us ever have to witness violence. I pray that this incarceration is the beginning of the end of violence in my family. I'm uncomfortable with all this talk about violence. I don't think it's right. I don't want to talk about the violence in my life. Me too. I'm not going to talk about it. You want to hear a funny story? Yes. yes. I'll make every one of you laugh your ass oh, you off. Can try. <laughs> all right. I've been hitting the pipe for years, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to smoke with me anymore. Yeah. On account of, I always think my hair is on fire what? as soon as I take a hit off that crock pipe. Smoke to the right, smoke to the left. I see that smoke rising, and I know my hair is on fire. So I got to get in the bathtub and put my head underwater. Got to. Doesn't matter where I am, whose house I'm at. People get tired of that, you know. Suddenly seeing me rush off, go fill in the bathtub with water so I can put the fire out. (laughs) Last time I left the med, I had a bandage on my right leg. The nurse told me, whatever you do, don't get that right leg wet. Oh, no. I'd been stabbed several times pretty deep in my calf. So I went home, and a friend gave me some money to get my prescriptions filled. But I took that money down to the corner and got me a rock. I hit that rock, and the smoke started rising. Smoke to the right, smoke to the left. I took off running for the bathroom and filled that tub with water. My little sister came busting in the bathroom, saw me with my head underwater, and my right leg stuck straight up in the air. <laughs> now my little sister knows I'm nothing but crazy. And now you know it, too. Girl, you ain't crazy. You all want to know what I've learned? So you want to know what I've learned? What? Yeah. What? yeah. You find out who your true friends are when you go to jail. Amen, girl. I called my boyfriend last night, and a girl answered his phone. Get out of town. Apparently... That jerk couldn't wait for me to come home. They never can. Same old story. He has a girl named Brooke now. You know, this strikes me as odd because I thought I was his girlfriend. Right. I'm here for you, baby, he said. Ha! What a weirdo. (laughs) Now that I'm not high, I can see who my true friends are. Better now than later, I suppose. High five, girl. That's it. Listen. I went to college, Mm. but I've learned more here in jail than I ever learned in a formal Mm. classroom. I believe it. There you go. Yeah. Out in the free world, I ran around with people who claimed to be my friends. Some of the most influential 
people in town with alphabet soup behind their names. You know, PhD, MD, LLD, SOB. Doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, and a judge. That's SOB right there. With all of this power behind them and their names, not one of them has found the power it would take to pick up a pen and write a note to me. Not, yeah, exactly. Not one encouraging word has come from them since I've been in here. Some friend. Not one of them has written to ask how I am doing. Mm. Yeah. So much education, and they still don't know the square root of squat. I have helped women here in jail study for their GED. Right? Yes. And that experience has taught me what it means to be a friend, right. to be appreciated in a real way. That's right. They don't appreciate, appreciate, that appreciate that without you. you. Here in jail, I have learned how to survive. I have learned how to pick up the pieces of my broken heart and weave the pieces into a beautiful tapestry of a life that is my own, a rich and vibrant life. Damn, that's beautiful. That's nice. I have discovered my strength. All right. And I've learned how to laugh in the face of adversity. Right. That's right. I've had a physics lesson. Physics? Huh? Two batteries and a foil gum wrapper will create fire. <laughs> I have been taught the many practical uses of sanitary napkins, <laughs> besides the single sure. use we all know about. They're excellent dust mops. Yes, yes they are. I now know that a colored pencil can be run under warm water and become eyeliner and lip liner. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have learned to treasure scotch tape. Oh, yes. A small strip can hold so much together. I'll tell you what, fixed my shoe. Yeah, it did. I have come to realize that we all have our own addictions. And that the only way for any of us to be free is to release past baggage. We can relax and recognize that none of us has control of anything in the Mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. Not even the highly educated people I once thought of as friends. I've been truly educated in jail. All right. I realized how bad my addiction had become when my little sister, who is my heart, said she couldn't be around me anymore. She said we could get together after I got clean. But I didn't want to change. It hurt me so badly to be separated from my little sister, but I understood. I respected her because she was trying to do better for herself. I just wanted to get high. It's a never-ending cycle, addiction. The consequences of my choices and behavior cause me great pain. So I take lots of dope to kill the pain, and round and round and round it goes. I'm now working on mending my relationships. I've got to build trust. I've got a long way to go. But the relationships with my mom, my sister, and my daughter, they mean more to me than anything. I got pregnant the first time when I was 12 years old. 
I had no idea what was happening to me and wasn't anybody I could ask. My next-door neighbor was having sex with me in the afternoons before my mother came home from work. He told me something bad would happen to my family if I said anything about what we were doing. I got pregnant the second time when I was 13. I got pregnant the third time when I was 15. When that third baby was born, I went on and dropped out of school. I had to. That's when my mother looked at me hard and asked, What's going on around here? Where are all these babies coming from? I was scared. I was scared, but I told her. I told her what had been happening. She slapped my face and said, Girl, don't you know how to lock that door? I was in the sixth grade when my mom and I had the sex talk. That little talk didn't have enough power to keep me from getting pregnant in 2008. I was living with my boyfriend. At the same time, I was having sex with an ex-boyfriend. I was using heroin, and that was all that mattered to me. I wanted to feel nothing but warm, fuzzy goodness. I prayed to God for a miscarriage, and I had one. I didn't want to get an abortion. Sometimes I wonder what my child would have looked like. My grandparents didn't talk about sex. I learned about sex when I moved to the city and met my first boyfriend. I was 16. I got pregnant that year. I learned about birth control after my first baby was born. I'm not sure you could call it sex education, but I was raped repeatedly by my grandfather starting when I was five years old. I learned that letting men have sex with me meant that I was loved. I got pregnant young, hoping that having a man's baby would make him stay with me forever. I learned it doesn't work that way. I wanted to be the cool kid at school. I met an older man. He would do anything I said to do, and he would give me anything I wanted. As long as I would let him look at me, my, my naked body. Not a problem to me. He had a truck, and he was old enough to buy alcohol, and I would be a very cool kid at school if I provided booze for them. Things were rocking along okay, but then he wanted more. I've never done that before. But he acted like more was expected. He started kissing me in places I'd never been kissed before. The kissing led to more. And all of this happened before any conversation about birth control. I got pregnant. I was 13. <laughs> I hardly ever see that man. I thought he loved me. But maybe I didn't do something right, you know. Maybe I should have given him more. Maybe getting pregnant wasn't cool with him. I had a six-pound baby girl. And that baby is now 14. And she lives with my mom while I'm here in jail. <sighs> my daughter argues with my mother and that worries me 
She comes to visit me here in jail, and I try to talk to her. I try to tell her what I know about life. But she doesn't listen to me. She doesn't care what I have to say. She just wants to be the cool kid at school. I had two unplanned pregnancies, my son and my daughter. My son's daddy and I were 22 when we had him. I felt like I was ready to be a mother. I told my son's daddy if he was going to be with me, then he would have to accept his role as a father to our baby, and he did. We got married a few years after that, and then our daughter was born. I've been with my husband for 27 years now. I love him more today than I did yesterday. He is my rock. I don't remember anything like sex education. My mama told me just, don't be fast and don't let some boy touch on you. She said, you let me find out you having sex, I will sew you up down there myself. She didn't know about our neighbor raping me when I was a little kid, so I didn't let her find out. I got pregnant when I was 16, and my mama took me to have an abortion. Now that's some sex education, huh? I was messed up and high the night I was raped and beaten. And if I hadn't have been high, maybe life could have turned out differently. I don't know what has made me think so little of my life and myself. If I had not been emotionally abused by my father when I was growing up, I might be a woman of high self-esteem. Might not have looked for love in all the wrong places. Might not have been raped and beaten. I've been a slave to drugs. I've turned my back on my children and left them at their grandmother's house so I could go to the dope man's house and serve my master. My children would cry and beg me not to leave. I hurt so bad because I could see that I was hurting my children, but I was a slave. If I had not been raped by my grandfather, I might not have become a slave to drugs. I I don't know. But I can imagine myself being somebody, maybe being a teacher now, somebody kids would look up to. If I had not been raped and beaten when I was young, I might be a successful hairdresser now with my own chain of style shops all over the country. I wouldn't live with anxiety and panic attacks. If I hadn't been sexually abused as a little girl, I might not have become a drug addict. I've been high most of my life since that guy raped me. I would have liked to study criminal justice. There's no telling what I might have done with my life if I didn't see myself as damaged goods. If I had not been raped while I was in college, I wouldn't be here in jail. I would not have married a man who tried to control me and betrayed me so badly. If I had not been raped, I wouldn't have allowed myself to settle for second best. And if I would not settled for second best, 
I wouldn't have landed here. I can't even begin to imagine how different my life would be if I had not been a victim of sexual violence. I can't even imagine feeling safe in this world. When you're born into sorrow, you see something more beyond the tragedy. cannot wait forever my soul is filled with expectation I was sexually assaulted as a very small girl nobody was looking after me but sometimes I think about what I might have been. I might have finished college and owned my own convenience store. I don't know who I might have been. I, I lost too much too soon. soon. I'm not going to sit here and blame my choices and crimes on any violence that others have done to me. I did what I did. And I'm responsible for it all. You don't have to blame anybody yeah, if you don't want to. You know what I'm saying. Just tell your story right, tell like your it story. is. Being in jail has given me a chance to slow down and think about my life. I am proud of my American Indian heritage. All right. All right. <laughs> I am full blood Cherokee. There you go. Okay. It's quite an experience for me to be in jail here. Huh. The employees here recognize only two races, black and white. Some officer asked me the other day, What are you? You're not black, but you're not white either. You Mexican? <laughs> My ID badge has a W on it. That stands for white. I told them when I was booked into the system that I am an American Indian. The officer said, that doesn't matter. Of course Just for the record, it matters to me. I am proud of my American Indian heritage. Life in this dorm can make a person crazy. Here's what I hear. Do I really get on everyone's nerves that uh, me? Well, I know who that Don't is. Don't look at me. No, look at me. No. You quit letting them worry you. Yeah, that's you. That's you. No, it's not. But do I talk that much, really, and that loud? That's right, that yeah. I feel like shouting, yes. Yes. No. Both of you talk entirely too much, too loudly, and always and forever about Absolutely nothing. I long for an hour of silence. I stay awake late at night hoping for silence. Instead, I get a melodic symphony of snores. Oh, the cadence drives me bonkers. Now someone is singing the theme song from the Facts of Life. Oh, Lord, how I want to go home. 
I want to go home, too. I miss my dad. He came from nothing, but he worked hard all his life and made something of himself. If my dad does anything, he gives it 100%. He has always known what he wanted and then focused on getting it. He doesn't allow himself to get discouraged. I wish I could be more like my dad. Let me tell you how a day on the street goes for me. Wake up and eat breakfast if I can find the time. Then walk the street, up and down, up and down, block to block, in and out of cars with men. Different men each time. Different amounts of money earned depending on which services I provide. Mm -hmm. Next, on a mission to get my goods and then got to find a place to hide for a minute, you know, disappear for a while. Oh, then back to the streets, block to block, up and down, in and out of cars. In heels. Yeah. Now that I'm in jail, I can actually say that I have some stability in my life. To this day, I wish I had never left Oklahoma. Oklahoma's mostly hills, mountains, creeks, dirt roads, and American Indians. I'm going to hold my composure in this jail and make it through this ordeal. It gets frustrating in here with all these women. Not everyone wants to change. Some of these women want to spend their time fighting all the rules. That's it. They're going nowhere. I plan to be a better person when I get out of here. I'll do it, too, because I want that change very badly. I refuse to leave this place the same person I was when I walked in here. I'm giving it my all. I want this. Not just for me, but for my family. I want to show them that a person can change for the better. If you go to the country, look for me there. I will not falter, and I am not scared. Back to the Lord Almighty, back to the cradle of creation. I'm trying hard to take responsibility for my life. Today, I am not the victim. I'm a young woman, and I love myself. I have the ability to love others, too. Today, I can forgive myself and others. Today, I am capable of being forgiven. Today, I am thankful to be alive. I am moving on. Leaving the past. In the past. Where it belongs. I have survived. 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 You have been listening to Chatterbox Audio Theater and Voices of the South's production of Prison Stories, Incarcerated Women, 
Writing Toward Freedom, featuring the voices of Gail Black, Miranda Fisher, Joe Potter, Randy Sluter, Jacqueline Suffel, and Ann Wallace. Music written and performed by Virginia Ralph. Produced by Ben Fickthorn. Directed by Brian Fruits. Created and coordinated by Elaine Blanchard. Chatterbox Audio Theater is a non-profit, web-based community theater that advances the exchange of ideas by channeling creativity and artistic collaboration into recorded audio works that enlighten, entertain, and inspire. Download our shows, meet our cast and crew, and make a donation to support our work at www.chatterboxtheater.org. And that was Prison Stories by Chatterbox Audio Theater, chatterboxtheater.org. Many, many, many shows there. Uh, You can sign up for their newsletter. Chatterbox is doing all sorts of new stuff. And if you're in the Tennessee area, they do cool events all the time. Uh, the next one they're working on is an animation education event with Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants himself, um, at a middle school in Tennessee. Uh, again, that's at ChatterboxTheater.org. For information on that, um, if you're far away from them like I am, you can just follow them, um, get on the newsletter, get on their Facebook, and see the great stuff they're up to. They are a full nonprofit, and there are a lot of people involved with them. Um, so they, they bring a lot of community stuff to audio theaters. So they're not not just creating new plays, as awesome as creating new plays are. Uh, they also seem to be involved doing workshops in local community. They have an actual space. Uh, they are doing live events as well as uh, studio productions. They're just doing a lot of really neat stuff. Um, Bob Arnold and the crew there have been some of the people I've admired most in uh, my growth as an audio artist to see them growing as well. Chatterboxtheater.org. Um, now, more about this powerful piece, Prison Stories. Uh, this is an interview from, with Elaine Blanchard that we borrowed from chatterboxtheater.org. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm down here in the Chatterbox studio talking to Elaine Blanchard, the coordinator of Prison Stories, which is the show that we have recently released through Chatterbox Audio Theater. Elaine, so happy to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, So Prison Stories, uh, I think people should know, did not start as, of course, a radio play or a Chatterbox production. This started as a stage play with a group here in town called Voices of the South. That's correct. So you tell me kind of the how many of these have you done? How long has this been going on? Uh, In January of 2010, I went to the prison and asked if I could have 12 women to sit with me in a circle and share stories. That I felt like uh, that kind of opportunity, the opportunity to be creative, to have our voice heard, to work on our own listening skills, would be a way for women to get free in a certain way to recognize their own value and the power of their own story. It was a theory I had based on my own experience that once I began to share my truth in my own story, I started standing taller. I started thinking of myself as a more significant person um, and recognized that I had lots to contribute to the world around me. So I just wanted to try this out on a group of women at the county jail. And and why did you think jail? Why did you think, okay, that's where I'll go try this out? I thought, where are a group of women whose voices have not been heard, whose lives have not been respected, and uh, 
Where are a group of people that we have stereotyped and boxed up into a very small package? And my imagination took me to the jail. So you go wandering up to the jail one day. Mm-hmm. You say, hey, I want to I want to do some <laughs> writing workshops with, with some of the inmates. You yes, know? and it really was uh, truly a theory. I had no idea if the women in the jail would want to talk with me. So um, you, you go through a process to um, get a badge for the jail and be safe to go inside. So I went through that process, and 12 women came into the room and sat down in a circle with me, and they clearly had not been given any information about who I was, what was going to happen here. So I said, you know, I've just come. I'd like to hear your story. And the process has worked, thanks to the women in the jail who are um, hungry to be heard, generous of spirit, and longing to make positive changes in their lives. They have been wounded enough by life. So they, they are eager for any opportunity to grow, to change, to become more. And I have been humbled by their willingness to trust me. Well, I want to definitely talk about the effect that it has with them. But before we get into that, did you know at the outset that this would become a theatrical performance? Was that kind of the goal in your mind, or did that come later? I planned to to stage it um, because my own work has been staged, and I have seen the impact um, that true stories have on audiences. So, I, yes, in some shape, form, or fashion, whether it was just uh, to read the work or, or to make real performance out of it. I started out just sitting to share the stories, and I sort of let that first circle of women guide me in what they were able to put up with. To ask them, um, can, can I take these stories out of this room and into a public theater I had to build some trust, I felt like, before I started talking with them about some of the ideas I was um, entertaining. Well, I bet, because here you are, the stranger. You come in, you say, hey, I want to hear all about your story. I can see on the one hand you said they're hungry to tell it and they're to talk about it, but I can also see, well, who are you? Uh-huh. you know? So exactly. wh- how do you do that? How do you build trust? Well... You know, people ask me about that all the time, and it is the question I wondered, too, walking in. I think once you're um, in jail and you begin to see yourself as somebody who has really messed up your life, you're at the bottom of the barrel now. I think if there is an opportunity to write a new story for yourself, just to imagine a brighter day, better relationships, a new gift. It's important to the women in the circle as they begin to think of themselves as writers. This builds their esteem. So um, when I suggested that we take this good work these interesting stories 
and share them with the community as a way to break down stereotypes, as a way to help the community see these are real women, mothers, sisters, daughters in the jail. They were happy to be, to contribute to that. And somehow the trust is there. I, I believe it has to do with um, my trusting them. I think it's a mutual thing that happens. I don't know when it happens. I don't know how to tell you how it happens. But it's in the circle. I never act like um, I'm there uh, in a leadership role. I'm there as a woman in the circle. I don't give advice. I don't try to save their souls. I'm just there to compassionately and respectfully receive their stories and pass them on. So do they, are there ever any of those moments where you're sitting there and you all of a sudden you go, my gosh, we've crossed a barrier. They're really opening up to me or is it kind of gradual? You just don't even realize it. I've had moments um, in the circle where um, I realize that my wildest dreams are being realized, that women are right at this very moment receiving empathy from the circle in a way they have never in their lives received empathy from other human beings. And it shifts the way they sit, the way they talk, and it really changes the way they enter the circle the next time. So, and are you giving them prompts? Are you giving them any direction, anything like that? Or are you just sort of saying, write and we'll share? How does the, technically, how does it work from week to week or time to time? When I first come, I give everybody two books, a novel, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, mm -hmm. and a writing prompt book, Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones. We read the novel in five sessions and write reflection papers about Janie Crawford and how we relate to her or don't relate to her and her relationships and her choices and uh, the good things that happen and the struggles and the pain. So we, we reflect off of Janie Crawford, write those papers. By the time we finish that, we sort of have some rapport in the circle. We kind of know each other. Then each woman makes a life map. I give them a big piece of art paper colored pencils, markers, crayons, and each woman makes a map that shows her journey from birth to now and imagining the future, where the road will take her. The artwork is beautiful. Each woman then presents that life map to the circle, and we only get about two and maybe three done in a session. So it takes about 30 minutes for them to tell us their life story that way. And we listen. Then we tell the person what we really affirm in that journey. We tell them the things that we're curious about, that we'd like to know more about. And we tell them the things that we connect with, that we also 
feel experience. And I keep, I write down the group responses and give that to the woman so that then she goes back, she's got paper and pen, and she writes about the things that we wanted to know more about. She writes about the relationships that we were curious about. And really, from that life map come lots of stories. I also bring guests in, other artists, singers, musicians, dancers, and they tell their story um, to the circle, why they do what they do, what their calling is, how they keep up their inspiration, and the group writes in response to those guests and what they learn from them. This last time, Memphis... Memphis Child Advocacy Center came and did a two-evening workshop with them about uh, protecting our children from sexual abuse. So this last performance then, as a consequence of that, had a lot of response about child sexual abuse. It turned out that of the women in the group, only one had not been sexually abused as a very small child. And the one who had not been sexually abused as a small child was raped as a freshman in college. Well, one of the things that I I think really struck me when I saw the stage performance, or one of the stage performances, is that there is there are so many facets to these women and I can see your process, um, how that would bring that out because you're not just talking about what they've done. You're not just talking about how they feel. I mean, these women are funny. They're sad. They're poignant. They have horrible things like that in their past, but it's, it's to me, it's impossible to reduce them to either one thing that happened to them or one thing they did after Mm -hmm. hearing this, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's one of the things that I hope comes out of this work, the realization that no human being can be reduced to a political party, a religious faith, a neighborhood, um, a demographic. In order to feel safe around each other, we need to know each other's whole story. And so it's my hope that this work kind of sheds light on the importance of giving each other a chance, of hearing each other out, and how sacred it is for human beings to really listen to each other. We pay so much attention to people on television these days and very little attention to the person across the street. And I think that's made us feel insecure. Do you notice changes in the women? I mean, I'm I'm sure you do, but can you talk about some of the changes from the beginning of the program to the end? Um, The women begin to trust the circle. And so as we are together for four months, 32 class sessions, and toward the end... There is um, so much respect for each other and such an ease 
uh, we can enjoy each other. Uh, and we can also um, share what hurts, be grumpy, and know that um, everybody in the circle knows that um, we're more than our grumpiness. I just watch a trust grow and an understanding. Um, and so people begin to, to look at ways and talk about ways they can use this experience once they're released from incarceration, that um, they want their children to know their story, their full story. They want uh, to make amends with people, parents, siblings that they've been estranged from. Um, they begin to trust themselves more, so it opens doors to trust other people. Just to play devil's advocate for a mm -hmm. moment, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this question. What would you say if somebody said, well, these women are in prison. They're the wrongdoers. You're, you are glorifying, you are promoting people who have done wrong. What about the victims? What about, you know, someone on the other side of that story? Well, um, we're all victims, I think, in this world where Crime, we can talk about Memphis. Crime is everywhere. If your car hadn't been broken into, you're rare. If your house hadn't been broken into and some of your things stolen, then you're lucky. And I believe that one of the reasons we have so much crime and despair and lack of respect for other human beings is that we have so many human beings who have not been respected, have not been encouraged, have not been supported, have not been told that they can rise above whatever uncomfortable and limited circumstances they come from. So, it is true that People can be victims of crime and that the women in jail might be the perpetrators of those crimes. But if we simply say they should suffer, they should be punished, they should think of themselves as nothing more than the dregs of the earth, then we are guaranteeing that there will be plenty of folks here in Memphis who feel undervalued, hopeless, and desperate. And if I feel undervalued, hopeless, and desperate, it probably isn't too much of a step for me to smash the window of your car and take your DVD player or anything else you've got in there if it might buy me a rock or a drug that would make me feel good for a few minutes. And what do I care about you anyway? You never cared about me. Maybe it doesn't occur to me we should care about each other. So I'm sure not going to care about your car window. I just believe it's a terrible cycle. And so one of the ways I'd like to chip away at that is to say to people who've been in trouble, I recognize you are more 
than the trouble you've gotten into. You know, there's a lot, obviously a lot of powerful stuff that goes into this. And the when I saw the show, the stage show, it kind of knocked me out. Um, but then one of the things that knocked me out all over again was that when I was at the performance, one of the women who had been through the program and then been released came to the performance. Mm-hmm. And after the show, there was that Q&A, that talk back. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she was just so, so effusive and so happy to have been a part of this. And, it, I mean, she just, I think she moved the entire room talking about the experience of just being listened to for once. Mm-hmm. So you can tell that it it made a very positive change in her life just to be you know, working in the in that circle for an hour or two a week. Mm-hmm. The correction system, as we have set it up, is about punishment and humiliation. So people pay their price. Nobody needs to think that you go to jail and you're well-fed and you have some kind of luxury life. It is all about punishment and and humiliation. You are known by a number, first of all. So I think it is surprising to the women in the circle that somebody is there to hear their whole story and to recognize their potential. So, okay, so you generate all this material, you have all this writing, so then... Uh, you, how does that become a stage play? Then you take this out with you, and, and what? I take their work, and it's a lot. After four months, okay. 12 women writing, it's a lot. And I simply uh, type it into Word. And then it's way too much. <laughs> so I start um, arranging it according to themes. And I, I try to start out um, the... The performance before this last one, I started out with pieces that women had written about their church and and what they love about their church family. And so I started with church and moved it to family and then moved it to violence and moved it to a series of arrests. And then we concluded by uh, stories of hopefulness for the future. And um, that's I, I sort of distill it and put it in a, a, a theme, a flow. I take the themes and I try to give it a flow so that the audience can take a ride with us, take a journey with us through the lives of the women in the circle. I think that's palpable, especially in this one that we just recorded. There are these just harrowing, dark passages that you sort of go through along with these women and then and then all of a sudden there's a joke and it mm-hmm. breaks the tension everybody laughs together and it's it's you know it's very effective so you have okay you take all this you pare it down to a script and then you work with voices of the south you're a mm-hmm. company member with voices uh-huh. of the south mm-hmm. correct okay mm-hmm. um and you guys tell me about the process of finding actresses and so we we find six uh actresses who want to be part of this process and um, Jerry Dye and I uh, put put the script on its feet in the uh, immediately as soon as we start working with it on stage, the script starts shifting, changing, and there's editing that happens. 
Um, and then we add music to it to keep the piece driving forward. And this, in this piece, first time we've had original music. Virginia Ralph wrote and performed uh, original music to go with it, which I thought just gave such depth and, and focus to the whole piece. But I can't say enough about how much I appreciate that, that new addition to the performance. And we perform first inside the jail, and the writers of the script are on the front row, and behind them are about 300 women uh, who are living in the county jail. This last time they brought in even the maximum security women, which I appreciated very much because they haven't done that before. Hmm. And then the staff, correction staff, are there, and the family members of the writers come. Their husbands, brothers, moms, dads come and sit in an area. That's my favorite part is meeting their families face-to-face. Then uh, we perform the piece. And there is, um, it's a very emotional experience. Miranda Fisher in this performance um, read the story about one of the women's daughters being killed in, a, in an accident. And so the woman whose story it was was sitting there sobbing as the story was shared. And Miranda was a few feet away from her, and she was sobbing too. So it's, it's a very emotional thing. It's also very validating. And every time that we do this performance inside the prison, at least one of the women, the writers, has a reconnection, an understanding, a deepening of a truth with somebody in her family. This last time, two of the writers, as a consequence of the performance, sat with family members and came to deep understandings about things that have happened in their past that they've never talked about together. So that happens inside the prison. Hmm. And how do the actresses, I mean, obviously it's emotional for them too, but is that, I would imagine that'd be nerve-wracking to perform someone's story back to them. Their true story in front of the person who wrote it. So it is, um, it's a real challenge. And to the person, the actresses have come away from that experience saying they wouldn't trade it for all the money in the world. Mm. It's very satisfying to help in that way, help a person see themselves, validate themselves and their relationships. And it's so hope-filled. The other women, like there are about 300 women there, clap and stomp and just carry on encouraging each of the women uh, whose story's been shared because if one woman's life can be celebrated, 
then it's possible that all of our lives could be celebrated. And you feel that kind of group um, celebration in that room. So you come off of that incredible experience, and you guys, I know, perform uh, stage shows for the for the community. And mm-hmm. then, of course, this time we were lucky enough to have you come down to the studio and, yes. and record the show. So did you, when you came to the recording night, what did anything jump out at you as being different or, or uh, kind of different focus from a live stage show? Because, of course, the stage show has movement. You know, it has some other things going on in it that we, we don't have in audio. But here what we have are those really detailed voices, very close performances. So what was it like for you to come down here and and just listen to it? Here in the studio, um, by the time the actresses had gotten here, uh, they had been through 10 nights of rehearsal, three performances, and now here we were uh, using this script in a new way. And the strength of it had been sharpened like a really good blade so that um, in listening to it, um, they, they put all the force of the intent of this piece into that microphone. And I think people who, who hear it on Chatterbox will be able to truly experience the strength and hope of the women whose stories we're hearing. I I really felt like it 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 blossomed um, for audio. And um and it was edited too. There were pieces that were cut and I think those cuts made it sharper, better, clearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, I certainly hope we're able to do it justice down here. So when people are hearing this uh and and you know, we hope they're listening from all over the world. It's Memphis area, but much, much farther. What do you hope when they when the show is over and they turn off their their MP3 player? What do you hope they have gotten out of it? That's a good question. Um, I hope that people are expanded. That they're less fearful about imagining that truly the people in jail are just as whole and human as those of us who have not been arrested and taken to jail. And that there is as much longing to belong, to be known, to be celebrated, to be given a chance, for people who are in jail as for those who arrest them. We all, I have a daughter and probably a lot of what I do is because I have a daughter. I want my daughter to be safe. I want her to be healthy. I want her to be well-loved. I want her to be happy. And if there's anything that I can do to make the world around her a better place so that the possibilities for those things are greater for her, then that's what I want to be busy doing. And I think we all understand that. Well, it's a 
powerful process. It's a powerful piece, and we're, we are proud to be part of it. So, thank Elaine you. Blanchard, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you, Bob. All right, and that was an interview with Elaine Blanchard from Chatterbox Theater, chatterboxtheater.org. Yeah, now it's Prison Stories in Voices of the South. Uh, powerful stuff, voicesofthesouth.org. Um, and we will be for- featuring more material. Um, this, this is the now for something completely different radio show, so there uh, may be completely different um, subject matter, material, part of the world, all that coming up next week. But we'd like to mix it up for you, keep things interesting here. I did promise last week that we'd have Transcontinental Terror, the horror radio show uh, that we did on Halloween night, available. Uh, that is now available at RadioDramaRevival.com. You'll see it probably just buried your feed. So um, go back and listen to those stories. Uh, also, 200-plus hours of original audio drama programming at radiodramarevival.com. Um, access to our archives of content. Search all the shows we've ever aired. Search for them by genre, artist, uh, good stuff like that. You can follow us on Twitter. Hit up at Radio Drama. Um, hit up our Facebook page, Radio Drama Revival, or iTunes, or Stitcher. Search for Radio Drama Revival. Uh, do leave a review or share with a friend. Uh, really appreciate your support and your listening to this original audio drama programming that's a wrap for this week uh, radio drama revival is produced by yours truly fred greenhalgh copyright of individual shows remains their original producers but do please share this show as far and widely as you like radio drama revival originates in on-air radio at wmpg fm it is southern maine's community radio podcast at radiodramarevival.com is labor of love till next time keep your mind and your ears open thanks for tuning in and have a great week